Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Achtung, Achtung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, Al Murray, James Holland, and of course, John McManus. And Jim, we were discussing earlier on before we came on air what we were going to talk about today. And you said the Smiths, of course, the Smiths. And uh, Yeah, but then we got we just got a bit distracted by John Houston's magisterial San Pietro. Yeah, we did, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we, so, John, we've been we've been talking a little bit about San Pietro, and um, and, and um, right or wrong, we're looking at the photograph of a, there's a rather rather tragic photograph of a of a, of a dead Italian um, who uh, resident of San Pietro called Rosa Fuoco, um, who was trying to fill up that you know she was in the caves and the and the attack started of course on in in the middle of December 1943, and she gets caught in the crossfire. She's gone out to get some water of her pail and she gets caught in the crossfire and an American bullet pierces her heart and that's that. She's on the ground. Anyway, the various photographs of her dead in San Pietro, one with a with an American GI with a, with a camera leaning over her looking pretty upset. Um, but there is also footage in John Houston's film and... I, I've obviously I've, I've watched San Pietro a number of times, but I hadn't really clocked Rosa Fuoco before because I didn't know who she was. So she just kind of, I suppose, went straight out of my mind. But suddenly, there she is. You know, it's just so um, Houston included that in the film. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, yeah. It's been a while since I've seen yeah. it. Yeah, 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 I mean, I do remember. You, you see the the devastation for the Italians. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we yeah. know the 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 actual name of this person then, who's been in yeah. that footage for years. Yeah, yep. I know. A brother's the village postman. Il Prostino. It's oh. extraordinary because the film does have dead Italians in it and dead American soldiers in it, and and mm-hmm. and there's a scene towards the end of of you know of American rows of American graves being dug and men being men being interred, which I think is which is which is extraordinary, really, for for the you know America's only been in the war a couple of years at this point, and and there it is. Quite so explicitly, uh, uh, what, what's happening to American soldiers? It's extraordinary. According to the, I mean, on the on the on the YouTube channel I've, I'm looking at it. On according to it, when accused of making an anti-war film, the film's director John Houston replied that if ever he made a pro-war film, he should be taken out and shot. I mean, I don't know if that's true, but that that that's the kind of, you can imagine John Houston saying a thing like that. Oh, I could too. It's yeah. well, it's a great film, which is which yeah. is quite appropriate for the topic. And yeah. for the for that battle, yeah. The other thing that's interesting is 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 what it says is exactly what we've been discussing about Italy. This was a, a land where it boiled down to one man. No, it doesn't matter how many tanks and ships there were. This is one man with his rifle and his carbine climbing up the mountain against an enemy he can't see, and all this. You know, it's like, but 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 you know that's absolutely the case. I mean, that yeah, is the terrain mitigates against all that other stuff. Yeah, and we were talking yesterday, John. You know, the the, the playing field gets leveled. In Italy, because battalions aren't at full strength like they are in for much of the time, like they are in Normandy, for example. The Germans are under strength, but the Allies are under strength. And the huge material advantage that the Allies have is not as effective in Italy as it is elsewhere. So so that playing field is leveled quite a lot. 
Yeah, well, and Italy's the perfect place for the for the Germans to fight because it's not very far from coast to coast. So you'd have to eat up that much manpower to to man a defensive line, and the terrain is just perfect, absolutely perfect for the defenders. Much less what you can do if you have a fighting retreat in terms of booby traps and mines. With the Germans are are sort of world leading experts at, at all of that, and then the weather contributes to it even more. Um, Italy's a terrible place to fight, much less the civil war that's going on. And the Germans can be using, uh, you know, pro-fascist partisans uh, for intel. Uh, you know, you've got that element to it as well. So, yeah, yeah. horrible place. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, but we're not talking about Italy today. No, we're here to we're talk to- we're about- talking about Smith versus Smith. Yeah, Smith versus Smith, and and of course uh, it's a common it's a common surname in America, I imagine. So, uh, oh yeah, <laughs> um, which, which pair of which pair of Smiths are we talking about? Yeah, so this is uh, Lieutenant General Holland Smith, United States Marine Corps, and then we have Major General Ralph Smith, United States Army, and so how these two kind of come lumped together is, of course, in the in the Pacific. Yeah, um, this is initially, Saipan, isn't it? In, yeah, so Saipan is when you see months of tension between them finally come to a head. Uh, but it's really kind of begun the previous fall in 1943 during the uh, the operations in the Gilbert Islands. Uh, the Marines, the 2nd Marine Division invades Tarawa. Uh, the Army's 27th Infantry Division, of which uh, Ralph Smith is the commanding general, uh, they invade Macon. Uh, concurrently. And so Holland Smith, really, it's often said he commanded the operation. That isn't actually true. Uh, he was more like a, a a sort of land force supernumerary who was aboard ship much of that time. So it's really, a, it's a division commander's fight, uh, uh, you know, both Tarawa and, uh, and, uh, and Macon. And so Holland Smith has it in his mind that the Macon operation should have gone much faster and that it's the army's fault and he's not the type to be shy about it. Now, there's a whole sort of biography of these guys that, that kind of leads to this point. Um, Holland Smith has, uh, you know, been one of the sort of introductory Marine officers in the 20th century. And so he has that kind of parochialism about him. Um, you know, I have a lot of axes to grind against him in a, in a way. And one is that unlike the vast majority of his colleagues, he had not really earned his stripes as a Marine senior leader. And what I mean by that, he hadn't been to the Naval Academy uh, and he hadn't been through OCS. He'd gotten his commission mainly through connections. He had a, uh, he had a law degree, and he was actually ironically thinking of going into the army, but they didn't have a place for him at that point. So they tell him, "Well, how about the Marines?" And he's like, "What are Marines?" And so he uh, he basically is just commissioned. Well, John, we've talked before on this podcast about how the American Army is sort of built from a jump start, really, in a great rush from 1939. Where do the Marines fit into the picture? Because again, coming at this, we have to disentangle the US Marine Corps' reputation for winning the Pacific single-handedly from the reality. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm right now (laughs) reading with the old breed. And if you told me that the US Marine Corps single-handedly defeated Japan, I'd believe it. Where do they fit into the American military picture? What are what are Marines? Because I know what the, the British tradition is, and you know that, that they're attached to the Royal Navy. They're based out of mm-hmm. they're based out of Plymouth. They 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 used to wear yellow um, originally in the original uniforms, and they the core is hundreds and hundreds of years old. Where do the Marines fit into the American military picture? Because they are slightly different to other Marines, aren't they? Oh, absolutely, and they have to be, and that's part of the ethos of, of being a Marine. So the the interesting thing about the Marine Corps is it's been around as long as this country has been around. I mean, it's founded on November 10th, 1775. Uh, so Marines had been around mainly as sort of like boarding infantry in, in uh, wooden ship 
struggles yeah. of the the late 18th and early 19th century eventually yeah. they're going to evolve kind of into embassy guards and sort of shock troops of naval special operations that go on in the 19th century but the marines were a very very small tiny parochial force and the, the interesting thing about the marine corps that i think is so funny even to this day it has its own its own status as an independent service in terms of like a seat on the, the joint chiefs but it's still part of the department of the navy um, so the Marines, just part of their ethos is they tend to hate the Navy or hate sailors and, and sort of distinguish themselves that way. And yes, yet at the same time, it's a, uh, it's a nautical maritime. And they also hate the army. Well, uh, not as much as the, as the Navy in a way, because the Navy's <laughs> so more funny. familiar. And, um, so the, right. it, but yet the Marines are a nautical maritime service and use those terms. So the floor is the deck, um, the, 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 uh, the door is the hatch, you know, things like that. Right, uh, it's yeah. really the 20th century, though, that the Marine Corps comes into its own as a modern fighting force in World War One, fighting those land battles at Bella Wood. And and, uh, yeah. and 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 you start to see a pattern that exists to this day of the Marine Corps being really good at publicity, um, at good at selling itself to the American public because it has to. It's small. It's all volunteer. It replicates and duplicates some level of what the army does, too. And so, you know, any kind of fiscal minded politician could always come along and they have saying, why do we need a Marine Corps when we have an army? And, you know, Marines practically go apoplectic at that. And, and I totally get why. Um, so the Marines had really quite modernized by World War One. And they had been really in the interwar period talking about how amphibious operations were definitely going to be a big thing in future wars. And no one wanted to hear that in the 20s and 30s and post Gallipoli. But John, they are designed for amphibious operations, are they? They are absolutely. They are. I mean, that is that is absolutely the the sort of job one for the Marine Corps. Jump off a ship onto land. Jump off the ship onto land. Be the shock troops that, that go in and take a beachhead. Um, you know, as things turned out, of course, in both World Wars One and Two, and thereafter, they're going to be involved in much more protracted fighting than that than just that, and have greater capabilities. Right. Uh, yeah. But Marines are, are superb light infantry. But you know, the other thing that they had excelled in by World War Two is counterinsurgency uh, in Central America, and so you had seen that. And, and the Marine Corps is going to be good at that kind of small wars side of the of the, the equation too, because. The ethos of the Marines, again, is the individual fighter matters in a lot, on a lot of levels. Uh, and we're all riflemen first and, and, uh, and in an era of hyper technology. And so, um, you know, by, by World War II, the, the Army, of course, has much more massive kind of, um, you know, jobs to, to undertake, but also amphibious operations, too. Um, so... They're operating, you know, this is the great myth of the Pacific War, that the Marines fought the war and the Army was in the in Europe. Well, no, I mean, the, the Army did most of the fighting in the Pacific because there just aren't that many Marines. Um, you know, there there's, what, 350,000 or something like that at, at the height in World War II. They mobilized six divisions. And so um, what, what you started to see by the time of, you know, 1943 and 44 among the better officers, you know, both the Marine and Army side, is learning to work together very well uh, because they're, they're they're more similar than otherwise. So, so between the Marine and the Army, there isn't a sort of barrier. There isn't a kind of sort of, you know, Marines hate the Army, the Army hate the Marines. Th th that's that's not the case, except in a few yeah, ways. Yeah, I don't think instances. it is. Yeah, I mean, I think that's overblown. I think typically uh, there's a tremendous respect, especially uh, at the infantry level, between Marines and soldiers. But – 
Marines have to be Marines in terms of that unique identity. And I don't know that it's any different with the Royal Marines. It's that unique identity you have to have um, and different training, probably more intense training and, and that pride in being a Marine. And all of that is great. But it's a bit like the pride of being a airborne soldier. A paratrooper. It? It's exactly like that. And all of that yeah. is great, except when you have senior level leaders who come along and, and take that to a level that is dysfunctional. And, and that's the issue right. with Holland Smith. Because this is where the, Smith, where the Smiths come in. Yeah. So Holland Smith is an interesting one because he's he's got, you know, he's he's first of all veteran, isn't he? He's, he's seen action. He is, but you know what? He, he'd never been a really a, a combat commander um okay he had mostly his his duty in world war one is staff duty um and i you know and that's great but he he creates this image by world war ii of this sort of grizzled combat commander no he wasn't um he hadn't really earned that stripe of leading marines in that fashion in my opinion which is a tremendous honor uh, because i have nothing but the highest opinion of marine combat infantry and combat troops um, right. But I don't think Holland Smith was up to snuff in that regard because I think he did him a disservice by not creating an actual combined uh, service team at right. both the Gilberts and at Saipan. Um, okay, so so let's uh, just, let's just sort of backtrack a bit. So so I mean, you know, if you look at pictures of him, he's got the little mustache, he's got the kind of surly bottom lip, he does look <laughs> grizzled. I mean, he looks like kind of sort of Walter Matthau, doesn't he? Like a whitehead version of Walter Matthau or something. Yeah, he does. Uh, and and he looks. I mean, looking at him, I would guess he's a Barker, not a Suva. Um, yeah. You can see he's a kind of my way or the highway type. He just got that kind of. Definitely. And he's in his he's in his sixties by the time the war comes along, right? Yeah, yeah. So he's not. So he's young. old, right? He's he's old, and he's he's definitely a first-rate amphibious thinker. He's a dedicated military officer. Um, but yeah, he's he's got no filter. He he is just says what comes to mind, and not really in a good way. Uh, and what I mean by that, like at Macon, he's circulating among Twenty Seventh Division soldiers and ripping the army up and down, and saying, "Oh, the army doesn't have any good lieutenants. You guys are idiots. You don't know what you're doing." I don't really think that's appropriate for a general to to operate that way, um, especially one who hadn't really earned it. And and uh, and he's wrong too, by the way. The twenty seventh division was a fine unit. Do you think um, that is like a chip on his shoulder? Really, is that is that a fundamental insecurity? Is that knowledge of his lack of experience? Uh, yeah, he's created this identity for himself as this as like Mister Marine, and that Marines are are supermen, and that. It takes Marines to actually do a job. And so like what he tells uh, uh, his friend, his good friend, Archer Vandegrift, who was a fine Marine and very different outlook. He tells Vandegrift, you know, during Macon and thereafter, oh, you know, any Marine unit would have pop gun and a midget would have taken that island in a couple of days or something. And it just sort of just downgrading the 27th Division without really knowing quite what he was talking about. But without any basis, without any facts, or any knowledge or anything. No, and exact like for instance, he he he, he, uh, he claims that one of the regimental commanders who was KIA at Macon, uh, Colonel Conroy, he claims that the the army soldiers under him just brazenly left his remains out to to rot in the sun, uh, without any without any honor, without any dignity, without any commitment to getting it back. This was absolutely one hundred percent wrong. It was injurious. It was incredibly hurtful to his widow, as you can imagine, uh, when when Smith is running his mouth about this. And you can imagine if you were the widow of Colonel Conroy, how upset you would be um, there. I've seen the actual um, 
you know, primary sources of the investigation that the 27th Division did about this. And uh, it just completely debunks everything that Holland Smith had claimed. It's almost like his agenda is to lionize the Marines at the expense of the Army rather than lead a combined service team. And that's where you have some serious issues. And that's because the corps that he's commander of is a mixed Marine Army it is, yeah, with him with him ostensibly in charge by Saipan, at least. And so, like you'll notice, it's very interesting, his wording um, by Saipan. He'll be talking about my Marines, my Marines, this and that, not my troops. Um, so the 27th Division, he's he'll later write, I didn't really want them. They really weren't any good, but there wasn't anybody else. And, and yet he didn't take any interest in their training. So he doesn't have like combined division training for 5th Amphibious Corps on the run-up to Saipan. If you were so concerned about your training, why not take a hand in making sure that they're up to your snuff? And he never does that. So, um, and, and so Ralph Smith is, is a, just a complete study in contrast. Uh, temperamentally, he's, yep. uh, he's just... He's just as gentlemanly as you can imagine. He is. He's deliberate. He's a little younger. He's younger. Yeah, he's fifty years old at this point, and so he so he's several years younger than Holland. He's a he's heavily combat experience from World War One. He had served in the Sixteenth Infantry Regiment. You guys know the Sixteenth Infantry Regiment. I mean, that's one of the finest regiments in the U.S. Army, and they did a hell of a lot of fighting in World War One. Yeah, Mer- the Merzagon um, offensive in, in exactly. 1918 and everything. So yeah, where where things really get real, don't they? I mean, oh, they get uh, terrible. He served there. Yeah. He was badly wounded. He got the Silver Star. He served in both the Big Red One and the Fourth Division. Um, he became fluent in French. He met his wife Madeline at uh, Valence um, in uh, in France, and he really. This is so funny too, because this is so army. He became one of the army's leading experts on France, French geopolitics, European politics. So naturally, they sent him to the Pacific Theater. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I, knew, I knew where you were going with that, John. <laughs> <laughs> it's just typical square peg, round hole, you know. But wh- wh- why does that? Why, why do things like that happen? He'd have been such a benefit to ETO, wouldn't he? He would have, yeah, and eventually he is. Um, you know, he'll serve in that capacity under Eisenhower once the whole relief happens, and you know, he'll be basically Eisenhower's lead sort of geopolitical guy by 1945. But um, the reason it happens is that Ralph Smith was going to become a division commander and the 27th was the one that was available for him. Um, So it was just sort of the exigency. And, you know, the other thing about Ralph Smith, again, unlike Holland Smith, he had really earned his place at the top in the sense that he had joined the army as a private in the National Guard and had been commissioned from the ranks, earned a regular commission, had been combat wounded, combat decorated, you know, and so, you know, this is a completely different kind of guy than Ralph Smith. So imagine yourself, or than, than Holland Smith, imagine yourself Smith, as yeah. Ralph Smith serving under this guy, having to, to handle his temperament. It's, it's you know, exasperating. But, but, but do, we, do we know, John, in 1943 when they first, uh, so, so this is the 5th Amphibious Corps and uh, that, that Holland Smith is commander of. And do we know that in the early part of 1943, when they're first coming together, is is there immediately a clash of character? I mean, do, do, no, it does Holland Smith immediately? It happens over time. It happens over oh, time. What is it? Of- what what is it about about about? Because it must more than just the fact that it's an army division. The 27th is an army division. What is it about Ralph Smith that really bugs Holland Smith? Um, Holland Smith feels Ralph Smith isn't aggressive enough. Uh, that he, yes. he doesn't want to take ground fast enough. And, you know, because, again, you, you'll hear a lot about the discussion of um, Marines sending what fast operations in order to free up ships. And so they're going to take higher losses in order to with frontal attacks. That's sort of the the uh, 
not a mythology, I won't say, but the stereotype. Uh, whereas the army, you I mean army officers that had been trained for combined arms, continental littoral operations, which you don't have to worry about the ships, you know, getting imperiled by kamikazes or something. And so, you know, there is definitely a, a different mindset. But I'll tell you what, when they actually, when you look at how they actually fought on the ground in almost all Pacific theater battles, it was very similar. Um, the way Marine uh, combat troops and, and Army combat troops operated. And Marines aren't dumb. They're not going to say, hey, let's go charge this machine gun so that we can free up the ships or something. I mean, no, they're smart. They're going to use all the combined arms they can and use cover, and, and they yeah. care about their lives. I mean, you're reading Sledge. You know you know exactly the mindset. Yeah. Well, you know? And they, like, they're essentially, they've got the same equipment, essentially, and the same problem to solve. So it's not like they're going to come up with radically different solutions, is it? With a, no, exactly. With mindset yeah they aren't and and so I, I think and so marines and soldiers once in real combat are going to operate pretty similarly i think and so you have a kind of a personality conflict between the two smiths in the sense of holland smith say anything that comes to mind uh, loose cannon parochial <laughs> yeah. and outlook ralph smith deliberate intellectual um gentlemanly but you know i'll say this for holland smith he had a great sense of humor he could be fun to be around when he was in the right mood but he was moody and temperamental and so so the the tension happens between them over time and so macon is the sort of the foundation of this when right. holland forms the idea that the 27th is no good and so that's on his mind by the time we get to saipan the following june you know when you've got a, a three division corps Second and fourth Marine Division, and then the, the Army's 27th Infantry Division. And it's the second and fourth that land first, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And they run into a heck of a fight. I mean, they, they, the second and the fourth fight extremely well just to get ashore. Um, right. And so, you know, the nut of this is that the, the Japanese resistance is so heavy uh, that Holland Smith has to send in the 27th Division sooner than he wanted to. Um, right. So and, it's, and, it's this, and it's got this sort of... Odd shaped island, isn't it? And they come from the they come from the kind of southwestern side of it. And there's this little big sort of hilly, mountainy area in the middle. And it's a bit kind of gentler in the southern half, where there's an airstrip, isn't there? And, and then, but there is still a while until you get to the southern coast of what's called the Nafutan Point, and yes. that is some serious ground. But you know, it's interesting, Jim. It's like uh, when yeah, you look that's, at that's Saipan, sticks off, doesn't it? like a little sort of bar, but yeah, the southeastern point and of that, the island. That was a serious nut to crack. But um, yeah, the, the topography of Saipan is kind of similar to what we were just discussing with Italy, um, that right. you've got this kind of central spine of, of horrible high ground sloping yep. down to, a, to an exposed kind of coastal area that if you're going to try to advance along there, you're just in a kill zone. Right. And so this is what, what happens at Saipan. So there, there's, there's basically two issues that start to come up as the fighting happens. So the 27th Division is landing you know, within a day or two of the original invasion. Uh, and they yeah. go and they take the key objective, the airfield, for the whole campaign, and they do it extremely well. And Holland Smith kind of overlooks it. But then south of there is the Nafutan Point, where you've got Japanese holed up on this high ground. And so and this isn't just Marines, this is Army commanders, too, in the Pacific War. The mentality is often, okay, well, there they are, and so we've got to go and we've got to, we've got to take that yeah, ground. They've, they've got the high ground, we can't move on until... Whereas, actually, yeah. you could just isolate it, couldn't you? You could just isolate it, exactly. And so I think this is tragic from, the, from both standpoints of, of, uh, of uh, both Smiths, that they, they have this mindset, we've got to go take the Nafutan point, we've got to have that. No, I mean, you, the um, I found that the... The uh, fighter units that were landing there at the airfield were already in operation, you know, 
very soon after the airfield was right. taken without any real hindrance from Nefutin. You just you just ignore the Nefutin point, don't you? Starve them out and, and pound them. And, you know, do, yeah, exactly. It's not worth the casualties you're going to take. But, you know, both Smiths thought it had to be taken and Holland thought it wasn't being taken quick enough. Um, and so there's tension there. And then what really leads to the ultimate, um, you know, blow up is when you've got the airfield and you're starting to turn north on this three division front. And the two Marine divisions along the coast are advancing faster than the 27th division in the middle, which is dealing with the toughest ground. Oh, it's called, what's, well, you know, the called Mount Tapacho and Death Valley and all that. And yeah, the yeah. ironic thing there too, um, the, when the Marine, the Marines had the same kind of problems when they were dealing with it. And uh, the Marine battalion commander who turns over the, the lead advance to the, the army's battalion commander, the 27th, that's, that's going to be in the lead for the attack tells him this is the toughest fight, the toughest ground I've ever seen. I don't know. I don't know how you're going to advance, you know? And so, but the, so if Holland Smith had been a hands-on commander who actually visited the front, he would know this. And so here's my other issue with him. He never really visits. He hasn't done the work. No, he hasn't done the work. So he, he, he wants to play the part of this combat Marine grizzled guy, but he hasn't earned it because he's not there at the front. He's not a, he's sitting on a ship, isn't he? He's aboard ship and he's at his headquarters several miles behind the lines. He never looks at the terrain of the Nefutin Point. He never looks at Mount Tapacho and Death Valley. He just sort of knee-jerk blames Ralph Smith and the 27th Division for kind of sucking and not being aggressive enough and all that. And and so th- when this all comes to a head, and I think this is just the ultimate juxtaposition, is how they spend their day on the day that Holland Smith relieves Ralph Smith. Holland Smith spends his day aboard ship lining up the what day is it? It's with, the 24th of June, is it? Uh, it's either the 23rd or the 24th. I don't remember specifically. But yeah, it's about it's about a, a week or so after the initial invasion. So, so the first, we should say the first landing is on the 15th, aren't they? For 15th of exactly. June and then, then supplementing yeah. on the 19th. Yeah, so Holland is aboard ship, you know, getting approval from Richmond Kelly Turner, the the naval commander, to relieve Ralph and and uh, and you know lining up his ducks in a row that way. Ralph Smith is actually at the front all day, risking his life. Was almost killed several times trying to figure yeah, out. Yeah, he he nearly loses his life several times. Doesn't oh, he? several he's, times. He, and, and, the, yeah. and there's one moment where a shell comes in, and there's there's sort of he's a, a, this gun position. A shell comes in, and someone like sixteen people are killed, and he's not. But I mean, yeah, he it's could easily he wasn't. He yeah. could have easily been killed. And on multiple occasions that day, he's trying to figure out a way to have this advance, you know, progress in Mount Tapacho and Death Valley and all that. And so he's been lucky to live to see the sun go down. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. 
We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Death Valley is an absolute horror story, isn't it? Because you've, oh, you've got you've got uh, Mount Tapachi on one side, and you've got this other little bit of high ground on the other, and then you've got this kind of peninsula sticking out, haven't you? Um, with with caves that they're fortified. with caves, and the only way through is this narrow valley, which is very narrow, yeah. isn't it? It's, it's 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 very narrow. Yeah, there's Death Valley, Purple Heart Ridge, and Hell's Pocket, which I think gives you some idea of. of- What's going on? Names like that don't don't exactly put you in an upbeat mood, do they? I know. It it sort of portends to what they're dealing with. And it it is. So you you could imagine you're leading, say, a battalion-sized attack on that, probably on that lower ground or the slopes of the ridges. They're in the caves firing down at you. Now, you've got some naval support and you've got your artillery support, but it's not enough. So what it's coming down to is just individual guys trying to assault those caves against the run of gravity. It's a nightmare. It's a bloodbath. And, and I don't care whether it's soldiers or Marines in the middle of that bloodbath. It's going to be the same kind of situation. And so, you know, Ralph Smith is up there dealing with that. Holland Smith is aboard ship and he doesn't even have the courtesy to come and relieve him face to face. He sends a message to him and then he orders him off the island and all the, you know, so it's just. And then it's, 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 it's terrible, isn't it? Because 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 oh, uh, Ralph Smith is out of the front and so, and some junior subaltern kind of you know some some second lieutenant turns up he's just been a you know he's a like a some aide that's been sent from the ship and and he he delivers a letter from holland smith and he opens it doesn't he in front of the guys mm-hmm. and then just folds it away and carries on he doesn't betray a bit of emotion a bit of response whatsoever he just gets on with the job in hand exactly. until the end of the day and it is amazing yeah he no emotion nothing continues the job and then stays there to brief his successor uh, General Jarman, I think it was, who's just put there temporarily and doesn't say a word against Holland Smith for decades, by the way. Um, right. It's no, not, that's, it, what I was, that's what I was going to be my next question is, surely there's a, is there not a memoir where he finally lets this out or does he, does he take it with him to his grave? He, he doesn't necessarily take it with him to his grave, but he doesn't necessarily publicize a memoir or anything like that. What he does, I mean, he his papers are voluminous at the Hoover Institution. They're fascinating. 
Yes, because he gets a position there, doesn't he, after he retires from the army? He does, exactly. And he retires there, and he lived a long retirement. He died in his 90s. And, uh, he, no, you know. he died aged 104. He was the yeah, last right. surviving general of the of, uh, uh, U.S. wartime general. Well, died in incredible. 1998, aged yeah, 104. Talk about amazing? having a last laugh. That's fantastic, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> because, he's, because he hooks up with Harry Gailey, who was, I think, arguably the greatest of all Pacific War historians, certainly right up there. Uh, mm. And so Gailey had done extensive interviews with Ralph Smith and, and all this for his his terrific book called Howlin' Mad versus the Army. And so... Um, and Holland is Howlin' Mad. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's his Howland, nickname, isn't it? And yeah, Howlin' Mad, which tells you Kinda something. Tells right you there. What, what you need a nickname, to know. you know. I mean, <laughs> can you can you imagine Holland Mad Eisenhower or you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Holland Mad Bradley or something? You know, so <laughs> so it tells you. And Holland Mad had written a just a horrible, really counterproductive memoir for him. I'm arguing uh, yeah. called Coral and Brass that he published in the late '40s, just ripping the army, ripping the navy doubling down on all these things he had done and and it just led to a firestorm and it what's sad about all this is when holland smith relieves ralph smith which of course he had every right to do but when he does that it leads to a total inner service brouhaha that lasts to this day in which then both sides then choose up sides in this knee-jerk reaction of oh i'm army i'm gonna rip the marines oh i'm marines i'm gonna rip the army or you know i'm navy yeah. i mean and that doesn't do anybody good any good it's it's sad because, because howling man says warns kelly turner beforehand doesn't he and he who is the um commander of the amphibious naval force and yeah. um the sort of supply force and he also warns Spruance, who's the overall commander at the time. Mm -hmm. And neither of them really feel, you know, you're the core cool commander if you want to sack someone, you yeah. know. Go ahead. You know, who, who are we to disagree? I mean, you know, you wouldn't expect Spruance or, or, or Kelly. No, Turner exactly. To, to it's right. I mean, and if they, because if they have overruled Holland, then they're basically saying we have no confidence in you as a ground commander. And that, that isn't right either. So Holland yep. Smith has every right to relieve Ralph Smith, uh, I, you know, of course, but it was doesn't make it, it was the right decision. I mean, it was it was a terrible decision, and it did no good for the the situation on Saipan. Um, and there was this, there's a there's a journalist there, isn't it? Was it called Cave? Well, it was Robert Sherrod. Robert Sherrod was the uh, uh, was really okay. the most influential journalist in t in terms of how this whole thing was perceived in America. Sherrod was an extraordinarily courageous combat correspondent, typically with the Marines. He had been at Tarawa. Right. He had written about it, and so he tended to hang with the Marines. And he writes a, a story for Time Magazine subsequently that kind of calls out the 27th Division that's sort of like Holland Smith's version of what happened. Uh, that's calling him out saying they cowered in their foxholes, they, they had no confidence in their leadership, all these really irresponsible things that then led to a fire. Oh, storm. no, it was Love, I'm thinking, not Cave, Love, Edmund Love. Oh, well, yeah. Love was a completely different creature right. in this sense that he was a, an Army combat uh, historian. Edmund Love... Um, is I would argue one of the most remarkable combat historians of all time. Um, wow! And and the reason I say that, just consider this: what he did. Um, certainly, he was at Saipan, and so he's reporting on what happened. But towards the the tail end of the Battle of Saipan, the Japanese launched a massive bonsai assault that fell heavily upon two regiments of the Twenty Seventh Division. They fought their guts out. Uh, to stop this attack, and yet they get called out in Time Magazine for being cowards, basically. Right. Edmund Love went and interviewed every single surviving soldier 
from that yes. bonsai assault, whether still in place in Saipan or tracking them down to the hospitals or back in the States, every guy. Um, so wow. and you talk about real careful history to learn what happened. I mean, compare that with Robert Sherrod, who in this case hung around at Holland Smith's command post, listened to the backbiting and then reported on it ostensibly. But this was not Sherrod's finest moment in what was otherwise a very distinguished career. Um, but, you know, just think about that. It's like, it's, it's mind blowing. Did, did, was there an, you know, inquiry as to, because surely when a general's relieved that there, yeah, there um, was. there's a yeah. panel get together and they look at the, the set of circumstances. They did. So, so it was so, called the right, Buckner so board. The Buckner board. What did the Buckner and, and board he, and, and, and Holland Smith is kind of slightly humiliated, isn't he? Uh, yeah, he is in a sense that, and I think maybe a little unfairly, you know, because, yeah, Holland Smith certainly, again, it was his privilege to relieve Ralph Smith, but I don't know that he had to be called out as badly as some of the army officers are calling him out just for being a Marine. Uh, and I think that's wrong too, you know? Um, so in the case of the Buckner board, it's headed up by Simon Bolivar Buckner, who would later be the 10th army commander at Okinawa. He gets killed on Okinawa, doesn't he? Yeah, exactly. And so Buckner had, had, uh, had really had a long career of, of inter-service relations by now. He'd been involved in the, in the operations in the Aleutians and he's got several other general officers on his board. They're all army though. And so they're investigating what happened, and there's a lot of good evidence that they uncover. Uh, but Holland Smith will view this as just a sort of army kangaroo court, and you know I'll, I'll never get a fair shake from them. And and he he claims to have had this sort of bitter encounter with Lieutenant General Robert Richardson, who was the the highest ranking army commander under Nimitz. And Richardson was not as bad as Holland Smith, but a little bit on that parochial side at times. Uh, and so I don't know the truth of what happened. It will never know because it's one person's word against the other, but it created a kind of a long-term bitterness between these two guys. And the Buckner board is seen by some in the 27th division as whitewashing Holland Smith's egregious actions. It's seen by the Navy and some of the Marines as being a kind of army kangaroo court. So I think overall it's fair, it's reasonably fair-minded, Though I think maybe yeah. a little too harsh on on Holland Smith at times, and that's me saying that, you know. So, <laughs> wow. So maybe take that into consideration. But, but it's fascinating, isn't it? Because because as you say, it is his priv- it is his privilege to do to relieve him of his command. But it's uh, but you know it's such a big thing to do, and because and as you say, it's because it's it's because it's a marine relieving a soldier of his command. It, it's got it's immediately it immediately potentially political and given the given the characters yeah. involved it I is mean, and you know the other element of this al that that's like on the political side that even as you had like Sherrod and time magazine and like the pro marine correspondents calling out the army you also had a pro army media bias among the William Randolph Hearst papers that have been lobbying for MacArthur to run the whole Pacific War. So they're <laughs> using this whole Smith versus Smith thing yeah. as ammo for them, saying we wouldn't have this if MacArthur ran the war and the Marines are reckless with spending lives. And, and so it's just it's just so discomforting. It's it's so and, and, and completely un- unhelpful to absolutely everybody, isn't it? Absolutely. I, mean, do, do, do you, I wonder whether this could have happened in <laughs> in the ETO, for example, I wonder whether part of it is because it's exaggerated or, or exacerbated, I should say, because you know they're thousands of miles away from other places. You know, Saipan. You know, wh- wh- um, what's the you know, the island base called called Entwok? Uh, is, is in it, a it's a, yeah, yeah. In a Wee Talk, yeah, that's how you pronounce it. So, so 
that's a thousand miles from Saipan. Uh, right. um, Pearl Harbor is three and a half thousand miles from Saipan. Saipan is not a big place. You know, the Marianas are not a bit, not a big place. It's just a little sprinkling of volcanic islands in the middle of the Pacific. So necessarily, it's kind of harder to get around. It's, it's a bit more condensed. You're all on top of each other a little bit more, but also you're also kind of distanced a bit more because, you know, Holland Smith is in his ship, you know, getting from a ship to the front is kind of, you know, a bit of a faff. Um, I wonder whether that was in Europe. You'd have a few more checks and balances in place. Oh, I think you would. Have you'd have other, other people in the core staff going, well, I don't know, boss. You know, he's done pretty well, actually. I mean, maybe. You I know, and I think him. you would have had a different kind of culture because Eisenhower would not have permitted that kind of like lack of right. teamwork, for lack of a better right. way to put it. Um, and you don't. And so Holland Smith doesn't necessarily have to answer to anybody who's going to call him out because uh, Nimitz has to tread warily with him for inner service reasons too. And now in the wake of this, very revealingly, Nimitz is going to sort of kick him into sort of upstairs to an administrative post as head of fleet Marine force. And Holland Smith will never really command troops on the ground again, as if he ever really did at Saipan. Um, is that because it is considered a black mark? I mean, is, is it absolutely. widely considered that Holland Smith has made an, an error? His fitness report reflects it. And Holland Smith is deeply wounded by that. And, and he will really kind of backbite against Nimitz for much of the rest of his life. Um, it, you know, so oh my God. absolutely <laughs> there's that. And so the contrast, here's what I argue, especially in, in, the, in my trilogy about the, about the Army yeah. of the Pacific, is that you see the problems wherever Holland Smith tends to go. When you see Roy Geiger, another Marine Corps commander, no problems at all because he isn't he doesn't have this kind of toxic, dysfunctional mentality. Roy Geiger works with his army colleagues very well and vice versa. Roy Geiger is a very high speed commander and he's the first Marine ever to command a field army when Buckner is killed on, uh, on Okinawa. And I think he's a fine choice. So it tells us that senior leadership and the personality really matters in that sense. It's, it's a cautionary tale, actually, because Holland Smith is just the wrong guy in the wrong place. Where he should have been, in my opinion, is in some sort of supernumerary amphibious expert post helping train amphibious troops for the Pacific War. And I think he would have been spectacular. Uh, but in a command role, working with other services, not just the Army, but the Navy, too, because he really hated the Navy more, if that's possible. <laughs> Um, <laughs> in that kind of situation. I'm just not sure that, I mean, he sounds like a totally, totally unsuitable person for the job. For, for that particular job of combat command with, with inter-service forces. You know, he, hates, he hates the Navy. He's got a beef against the 27th Division, which is under, I mean, you know, if he's got, if he's got concerns about the 27th Infantry before the invasion of Saipan, you know, he should be going around there and inspecting their training, seeing what they're doing, saying, what can I do to help? Absolutely. And he doesn't do that. And all those sort of things. And, and he's not. He, his, his reaction is, well, they're not one of, they're not one of us. They're different. And, and I'm going to disparage them and I'm going to knock them. And I mean, he should understand the importance of morale in war and, and the, the catastrophic, Absolutely. you know, if you, if you really genuinely feel that you're that your commander is not the your divisional commander under you is not the right person then okay take him out but but you've got to be really sure of your footing beforehand mm -hmm. and you've also got to be sure that the that your troops below you are kind of singing for that because they're the guys yes. that are putting their necks on the line yeah, yeah, yeah. and and presumably R ralph smith is quite popular he was very popular and they were not happy with his relief which then led to many of them dysfunctionally lashing out at the marines 
I found right. some letters that are just horrifying, you know, that some of these guys wrote home ripping the Marines up and down and, you know, and, and that doesn't do anybody any good. The other element with the no. 27th, they're a National Guard division from New York. So they're politically wired in with some powerful folks from New York who now want to have a congressional investigation and turn it at that level. You can imagine right, what right, a nightmare right. this is for Admiral King, General Marshall, Admiral Nimitz, and all of them, I think, acted very uh, responsibly to, to kind of nip this in the bud and, and let cooler heads prevail. It's an appalling decision, isn't it? Whichever way you look at it, it's a terrible decision because he he's not done his homework. He's, he's suddenly, you, you get the sense that Holland Smith has got it in for Ralph Smith before Saipan's even happened. And that he's just waiting for the opportunity to kind of pounce out of him. So it's kind of sort of preordained. You know, he's come to it. He's come to Saipan with severe reservations with the commander of a third of his force. You know, what on earth haven't you sorted this out beforehand? Yeah. Jo- um, John, how often are divisional commanders relieved of their job? Uh, it, it, because we're talking about this as though it's an extraordinary event. Is this something that happens often in the US yeah, Army? Is. How, how often yeah, it you- is. So the fact that you, we're talking about this as like uh, as this injustice seems to be the right word here. How often is this happening and is it normally a decision where people go, yeah, well done, um, he had to go, he wasn't up to... Normally it's that, uh, because it's pretty clear that the division right. commander had to go. But normally you don't have this complicating factor of inter-service problems yeah. of a yeah. Marine officer What was, officer the name of the, what was that division, officer? that young division in Normandy, John? I can't remember which one it was. And they, the they sacked two. The 90th yeah. sacked two. Yeah, they sacked two First guys. First guy wasn't up to it, it, second one wasn't up to it. Yeah, the 90th Infantry Division ended up being a really good unit, but boy, it went through some growing pains in Normandy, and the senior yeah. level leadership was just absolute right. crap. They, and so they it were in had the to southern, be out. <laughs> they were in the southern Cotentin um, uh, Peninsula. They were, uh, and, yeah. And they really weren't good. It was quite right. They, were, they had a hell of a time dealing with the hedgerows, and their senior officers did not you know, innovate enough to deal with that. So, but there was no problem there because it's army to army and it's like, okay, well, we move on. If it's a Marine yeah. officer relieving an army officer, now it introduces that element of, of inter-service whatevers, you know. Complication, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that, but the fundamental reason is is that it wasn't deserved. In this case, it absolutely wasn't deserved. I, I, I have no reservations about saying that. Yeah. And, you know, no no one's kind of shedding any tears for Friedendahl in, when he's sacked from two corps in, in Tunisia. Not a lot of people, <laughs> if we're honest. And also, there's not yeah. a huge amount of outcry when, when Lucas is sacked or even Dorley. You right. know, d- d- these guys. And Walker. You know, and yeah, uh, I Walker, mean, it, it, the, 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 there's issues with right. them. Right. On and on it goes. The, the only one I guess we would point to in the European theater, we would say this was perhaps unjust, is Wood, the commander of the 4th Armored Division, who Patton really right. is mainly for exhaustion reasons in a way. But, but uh, and, and he, you know, he's- Oh, Terry Allen. Some, Terry Allen, 1st Division. Terry Allen before that. And the, but, you know, some, some will argue, including uh, my friend Kevin Hemel, will argue that this was planned, that it wasn't really a relief. It was a redeployment so he could go and train troops at, uh, in the U.S. and then come back and get a division command, yeah. which, of course, he does with the yeah, 104th. Does, yeah. Kevin- That's what then happens anyway, yeah. Yeah, so Ke- Kevin is, you know, very much an expert on Patton, and he believes that uh, he's found evidence to show that that Allen and Roosevelt were not necessarily a relief or cause of any kind, but just so, sort of planned in the works that way. Um, but you know, debatable, I guess. But the uh, finger's always pointed at Patton, isn't it? But it was actually Bradley that instigated. I seem to remember. Uh, technically, yeah, yeah, but but certainly there's tension with with uh, between Allen and Patton at times. But uh, but I think Patton greatly respected Allen. Yeah, because he's a bit he's a bit rough and ready and doesn't stand on ceremony, and his. Exactly. He likes his minds to go off and booze up and brawl, and when they've got <laughs> exactly. time off, 
off off the line. Patton doesn't like that. And, you know, so there is a sort of culture. Yeah, right. I mean, it is interesting that this stands out, though, because things generally chime along fairly collegiately, don't they, in in the American, even in the Pacific theatre where things are complicated. And I mean, you compare this to the Germans, you know, people are being sacked every time, every five minutes. (laughs) There is no board of inquiry. If you're, you know, if you're relieved of your job by the Fuhrer, there isn't then a sort of, some some other some of your peers that's around going <laughs> it's whatever the Fuhrer wants and and, yeah, and then he brings yeah. you back next week right I mean it's exactly yeah, yeah. so at least there are procedures here that's, I mean, oh, it's yeah. interesting that even with someone who's basically a bull in a china shop like Holland Smith that you can still you there are still ways of I mean it's fascinating isn't it that basically his career is soiled by this and Ralph Smith's isn't um uh, in the end that Smith emerges smelling of roses and you know and lives to 104. He lives 104. He got division command of the 98th division immediately after, which, you know, didn't see combat at the point. And then, as I mentioned, he's sent to Europe, which I think was his great strength, too, ultimately. But, you know, speaking of the recourse, um, there's almost kind of a tragic figure in a way, a a major general named Albert Burphy Brown, who commanded the 7th division at Attu in May 1943 and is relieved um, by people who don't come and see what's going on in the battle and... And I think somewhat unjustified, he has he he spends the rest of the the next year clearing his name through official channels, um, and and it becomes kind of sad in the sense that they say, you know, Albert, we think you have a point, but we don't think it's good for us to really put too much a highlight on this. So why don't you just keep quiet about it and we'll give you something of what you want long-term, but we can never really clear your name kind of thing. He gets a division at the end in, uh, in Europe ultimately. And, and he will think of himself as being somewhat exonerated, but he always has that, that kind of uh, stigma, I guess you could say too. So there are these little mini tragedies too, that pale in comparison to what's actually happening in the war, to, you know, but for these guys and their careers, it's a sad thing sometimes. Well, I mean, this has all been absolutely, it's fascinating. In a strange way, the, the idea that someone's personality can if, it, um, influence events so much in, in this great big sort of machine of war, even if it's Holland Smith being a, basically a, you know, <laughs> a pain in the neck, it's fascinating yeah. that a person can still influence events in this, in, and ins- assert themselves in such a way that they can make a they can make a dreadful decision and it happened. You know, it's uh, it, I know it's interesting yeah, in that respect. Me too. Yep. Definitely. Well, thanks very much, John. That was absolutely that was absolutely fascinating, wasn't it, Jim? Yeah, brilliant, yeah. brilliant, brilliant, Taylor brilliant. Two, Taylor two Smiths. The Taylor um, two we'll, Smiths. We'll see you all again very soon. Thank you very much for listening. Bye bye. Cheerio. See ya. <laughs> <laughs>